New analysis from the Worldwide Fund for Nature found that climate change and agriculture are fueling record levels of deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, We've also been directly experiencing the effects of climate change with intense heat waves and torrential rainfall, uh, especially here in Korea. Uh, To top it all off, the, the current pandemic might actually be adversely affecting the deforestation situation around the world. So to get further analysis on the issue, we're very pleased to be joined by a distinguished senior fellow at the World Resources Institute, Francis Seymour. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me and for covering this important topic on your show. Well, thank you so much for joining us and helping us understand the issue better. Uh, Can you first um, explain to our listeners a a little bit on why deforestation is such a big issue and how uh, forests, uh, besides being beautiful and and, and a wonderful place to to view the scenery, how it benefits humankind and provides a a wide range of uh, goods and services? I'd be happy to, but it's really hard to know where to start because forests provide so many different benefits at, at so many different levels. Maybe starting at the global level, forests, and especially tropical forests, are essential to protecting the climate. Because when forests are destroyed, all the carbon that's stored in trees and soils is released up into the atmosphere. Conversely, when forests are protected or restored, they pull carbon out of the atmosphere as they grow. And so there's really no scenario for reaching the goals of the Paris Agreement unless we protect forests. Moving down to the more level of regions or individual countries, there's a lot of new science showing how forests regulate the climate, you know, at that level as well. For example, they regulate rainfall patterns at the scale of entire continents. You mentioned, you know, the the dramatic rainfall deluges you've been experiencing in Korea. Mm. Well, it turns out that through evapotranspiration, forests pump moisture into the air, and chemicals released by forests influence cloud formation, and forest canopies affect wind patterns by their their rough surface. So if you deforest in one place, it can affect rainfall up to hundreds of miles away. So if the rainforests are cut down in Brazil, for example, it could affect rainfall in Argentina. Or if the rainforests of Central Africa are cut down, that could affect rainfall in Egypt. And when you think about it, that could have some really worrisome implications for agricultural production, you know, and threaten global food security. But it's really at the local level that forests have the most immediate, you know, impacts on human well-being because they provide so many goods and services to people who live nearby. And it's not just timber. Right. Um, there was research a few years ago in a bunch of villages in developing countries showing that on average, households in those villages got about 22% of their household income from gathering wild products from the forest. So firewood, foods like honey and nuts and mushrooms and hunting, you know, bushmeat from wild animals. Mm. But they also provide services like, you know, regulating the local water supply and keeping temperatures cool. And for indigenous peoples, forests are really intertwined with their cultural identity as well as with their livelihoods. So that's a lot of benefit. Right, for sure. Now, in one of your publications, you you talked about how the world lost 3.8 million hectares of topical primary uh, in 2019. Uh, This is one of those cases where elections have consequences. If we look at the situation in Brazil and the uh, President Bolsonaro and his controversial policies in regards to the Amazon forests. But uh, generally speaking, what are the primary reasons behind that dramatic loss. Uh, do you do you think the situation is going to be similar this year, especially with those Amazon fires? Well, well, first, before I get into the causes, I just want your listeners to understand just how big 
you know, that area of forest loss is, 3.8 uh-huh. million hectares of primary forest, um, because it's about the size of Switzerland. Mm. Or, if I do my math right, 60 times the size of Seoul. Wow. And so it's equivalent to losing a football pitch of forest every six seconds for the entire year. And it's frankly utterly unacceptable because 2020 was supposed to be the year that we stopped deforestation, Mm. according to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. But, you know, instead, the rate remains high. Now, to get to the question you actually asked, what's causing the, the tropical forest loss? Well, the the proximate causes um, vary from region to region, but it's it's primarily converting forests to agricultural land. So in Latin America, certainly in the, the Amazon, it's land clearing for, for soybeans, for cattle pasture. In Southeast Asia, it's mostly converting forests and peatlands to um, oil palm and other um, plantation crops. In West Africa, it's clearing for cocoa. In Central Africa, it's mostly small-scale agriculture and, and logging. But what's common across these causes is that they're sort of ultimate causes, and those include a a persistent global demand for those commodities that replace forests, so we're implicated in this picture, and also poor enforcement of laws domestically and and laws that are are already on the books. So you've asked me to predict, you know, what's going to happen this year, and I'm I'm loath to do that because it's, it's often premature to draw conclusions from early alert data to, you know, what, what's, you know, actually going on on the ground. And frankly, we're only at the beginning of the fire season um, in, in many of the key countries. And the governments of those countries, as you suggested, have given some mixed signals about how they're going to be responding. And, of course, everything is different now in the context of the pandemic and the associated economic crisis. But, um, you know, what I will say is that there's certainly a lot of cause for concern because earlier this year there were reports of an uptick in land grabbing in the Amazon mm. and unusually hot and dry conditions, and that could make for a really combustible combination. At the initial outbreak of the pandemic, I remember the media reports, I'm sure you know better than I do, about how anecdotally people talking about the Venetian Canal and how dolphins came in because the water's so clean now and these quaint anecdotes of deer running in the middle of these big city downtown streets. And so you might have thought, OK, a y well, the pandemic with people staying at home, that means the environment might be improving, but maybe not the case for the issue of deforestation. You've discussed how the pandemic would be related to exacerbating uh, the uh, situation. You point out three key areas. Could could you talk about that a little bit more? I know you were alluding to it um, uh, uh, briefly uh, prior to this, but uh, the the land grab issues, also um, the the pillaging of forests, uh, uh, law law enforcement officials may be distracted, and and I, I guess really more of a Wild West situation. Is that really the case? Well, um, that is what we fear um, could be unfolding. Um, while we still don't have, you know, good comprehensive data, there are plenty of anecdotal reports about criminals taking advantage of the situation to engage in illegal logging, illegal forest clearing, or poaching of wildlife, while public authorities are distracted by the global health crisis. And while law enforcement officials may be constrained, you know, by limited mobility to go to the field and enforce the law, Um, both because of the pandemic and because of the economic crisis has led to, you know, budget cuts, you know, in in their ability to to travel. And so I think there is um, a danger that illegality could flourish, you know, in this, um, you know, multiple crisis situation. But there's a a sort of a more insidious and potentially long-term effect on forests 
that could come in how we design the economic recovery packages and a fear that we could be bailing out economies on the backs of forests. And, you know, some countries have already announced plans to relax environmental regulations in order to attract investment. And big spending on new infrastructure or on trying to achieve food self-sufficiency could easily come at the expense of forests. And so it's really important that governments not be bailing out businesses that deforest and instead be investing in, for example, forest restoration and investing uh, in local communities, perhaps providing temporary transfer payments to tide them over through the, the economic crisis so they're not forced to go into the forest for their livelihoods. I guess the other linkage I would point out, it's not a, a direct, you know, a cause of deforestation, but, you know, the last thing we need in a COVID-19 pandemic, which, you know, primarily manifests as a respiratory disease, mm-hmm. is, you know, laying on smoke from forest fires right. to send more people to the hospital with respiratory disease. So um, it's especially important now to, to protect forests and especially to, to suppress the fires. And the the way you lay it out and other scientists uh, have also uh, kind of raised the alarm bells, it does feel like an insurmountable task. You mentioned how uh, we're just far off from uh, the goals of the Paris uh, Climate Accords, uh, which uh, unfortunately have been uh, perhaps now the efforts stalled because of the actions of the Trump administration. But bottom line, in your expert opinion, what is the most important uh, step or solution we can take to, to Uh, stopping deforestation, what measures do you think should be taken to to protect forests as we also try to protect ourselves uh, in recovering from this pandemic? Sure, great question. And the good news is that we actually know quite a bit about what's effective in stopping deforestation. You know, there's a lot of good spatial data from satellites now and good econometric analysis where you can actually, you know, demonstrate that law enforcement works or protected areas work. And so it's really more of a question of how to marshal, you know, the political will to do what we know, you know, can work in stopping deforestation. So I would say that while there's no, you know, silver bullet or single solution, I would highlight three things that would be helpful. One is that rich countries like my own should be providing financial incentives to governments of developing countries to protect their forests and especially to enforce the law. We already have a mechanism called Red Plus for reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation that was negotiated under the Climate Convention, especially for this purpose. But so far, it's, it's hardly been used. And uh, we need to, to give national finance ministries and provincial governors and others uh, an incentive and a financial benefit to protecting forests because now they, they really don't see it. So that's the first one. The second solution would relate to consumption. You know, I mentioned earlier that we're complicit in this by, you know, purchasing products that are are produced on recently deforested land. And so we've got a lot of companies that have pledged to get deforestation out of their supply chains, but more consumer pressure, and including through government procurement policies, would help incentivize, you know, the implementation of those commitments. The third thing would be to uh, encourage the governments of the the tropical forest countries to respect the rights of indigenous peoples. You know, uh, indigenous peoples have historically been very capable stewards of the forest, and much of the remaining forests are within the customary territories of indigenous groups. So if their rights are strengthened and they're assisted to realize forest-friendly development models, that could be a really important part of the solution. Well, uh, we certainly learned a lot. Uh, Francis Seymour, Distinguished Senior Fellow at the World Resources Institute. Thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure.
Let's continue our discussion of focusing on what measures exist to help prevent illegal deforestation and preserving the environment. We're very pleased to be joined by the co-director of the Lab of Forest Advanced Computing and Artificial Intelligence at Purdue University's College of Agriculture and co-founder as well of the Global Forest Biodiversity Initiative, Professor uh, Jingjing Liang on the line. Hello. Hi, Henry. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor. Uh, You talked about the importance of data sharing and how uh, data sharing helps control the spread of the virus in places like uh, Germany and all over the world. Uh, In your opinion, why is it so important to share this existing and upcoming data as well on forests? And really, how much unused data is just sitting in drawers? Um, Great question, Henry. Um, So nowadays, whenever we switch on the news, either on radio or TV, it is a constant reminder that our world is in a, in a crisis, right? And so this crisis, this worldwide crisis, is manifested in forest ecosystem in three ways, in climate change, in biodiversity loss, and ecosystem degradation. And it is also important to know that there is a negative feedback of all those uh, crisis manifestations in forest ecosystem to human society. For example, we know that under climate change, some forest is going to store less carbon, and therefore the carbon emission is going to worsen the climate change. And also, as the, uh, the coronavirus that you just talked about, this disease and other zoonotic diseases such as Lyme disease, those are closely related to forest conditions. So under climate change, biodiversity loss and ecosystem degradations, unfortunately, I think pan- the pandemic is going to get worse. Mm. So with that, we know that the data sharing is critical for us to monitor the forest ecosystems, right? So right. without knowing where and when the bad things are happening to our forest, we would not know what can, can do to better mm. help it. And also, I'd like to mention that um, having data, having open data and good data sharing is a good foundation for the science, which leads to the good mitigation of those crises. Uh, Professor, you've also mentioned that the uh, Global Forest Biodiversity Initiative uh, had a, a module that works uh, because it addresses the two core issues surrounding data sharing, which is motivation and memes. Could you uh, further elaborate on what you meant by this and uh, how exactly the GFBI module works? I'm sure. So back in 2016, when we first started uh, developing the GFBI, we noticed that there are two major issues with data sharing in forestry a lack of motivation, and a lack of means. So what this means is that uh, the data owners who have a large quantity of data, they are usually reluctant to share their data, mainly because it costs them a lot to collect those data. And by open sharing those data, they do not usually do not get much benefits from that. And then even for those who are willing to share those data, they do not have the proper channel, proper means to share those data. So in order to address those two issues, we created a GFBI as a bridge, simply connecting data users to data owners. And so in 2017, in our GFBI Global Congress in Beijing, China, we established the bylaw of GFBI, which requires that all the data users properly acknowledge uh, the participation and the contribution of data data owners, and they also offer them a chance of ownership uh, and also authorship to to to, to their uh, research. So this has provided a big motivation 
for many data owners in GFBI to, col- to participate in our global research. And last year, it was reported that for the first time ever, Earth's uh, so-called tree microbe network was mapped out, which allowed researchers to, to confirm the patterns that have long been suspected. How much did this information, in your view, help other studies or researchers uh, get further along? Um, it helps a lot. So what this research, what this paper did is that, um, well, it dates back to 1991 when Professor David Reed from University of Sheffield, he made this very famous hypothesis that in high latitude areas, because of the, the low temperature, um, the um, forest litter decomposition rate slows down and it favors the ectomycorrhizal fungi. Okay, and uh, ever since that uh, hypothesis was made, lots of local studies have been made to test that hypothesis. But there is no global analysis until what we have done uh, back in 2019 when this paper was published. So we compiled this huge global data set, and based on which we will be able to test and analyze this uh, this hypothesis. And, uh, and we further, based on the distribution of forest tree species across the world, we were able to map the distribution of mycorrhizal fungi and their types across the world. Uh, so ever since it's published, there has been gained um, over 70 citations uh, within one year. And we see that um, people in climate change, carbon cycling, forest management, biodiversity conservation, forest restoration, and even computer sciences are citing this paper, which means that um, people from different backgrounds in science they are making use of, of, of this information just published last year. Well, uh, it is great that uh, it does seem like the science on this is certainly progressing on it. Uh, if we could talk about then the, the uh, regulatory framework uh, for this, Professor, there's a new UK law uh, that now requires uh, UK businesses to show that their products and supply lines uh, are not involved in any uh, illegal deforestations. So um, how can we better understand those kind of uh, new initiatives and regulation schemes? And also, uh, in your line of work with with the data sharing, do you think more governments uh, could implement similar rules to their products as well? How much do you think we can uh, benefit if more laws like this are enacted in other parts of the world, like in the U.S. or maybe even here in Korea? Um, Well, Henry, having laws like this is generally a good thing, very good thing. However, as we often say, uh, the devil is in the d- details. So the way I see it, there can be two devils with regard to this issue. So the first one is how the law can be enforced. The second one is how the law can be implemented. So regarding the law enforcement, uh, in my experience, there have already been some laws that have failed, for example, to stop illegal logging of some very valuable forest ecosystems across the world. And some laws have also failed, for example, to stop the expansion of the plantations of palm oil, which has destroyed a large amount of tropical forest already. Now, simply because this is, it is very difficult to enforce these laws without effective monitoring of our forest. So now this comes back to our um, um, open data and the data sharing. It is very important to gather this such amount of data to monitor our forest and without which we cannot effectively uh, enforce the law. And on the other hand, 
the implementation of the law, as we all know, the uh, environmental laws should be backed up by solid science. And the basis of solid science should be the quantity and quality of data. So without such open data and data sharing, we would not, the researchers would not be able to come up with good science uh, based on which we can implement good laws to protect the uh, forest ecosystem and resources around the world. Well, uh, it certainly is uh, a, a very, very fascinating a new initiative here, and uh, uh, we definitely uh, thank you for uh, bringing it to our attention. And Professor uh, Jingjing Liang, thank you very much for joining us and appreciate your time. Thank you. It's my pleasure.